Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I am your guest, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. And with us as a guest host for our annual trends interview is Christopher Washington. Christopher, why don't you tell our listeners who haven't met you before a little bit about who you are. My name is Christopher Washington. I serve as the provost and executive vice president at Franklin University, and I'm very much invested in leadership development. I serve on the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition's Ohio Advisory Council and as a member of the Forbes Nonprofit Council and more recently on the America 250 International Task Force. Beautiful. So take us away as our host. Well, it is a great privilege to get the chance to interview you. Over a year, you have the opportunity to work with clients and to conduct leadership interviews throughout the year, over 50. And from those interviews, you derive a number of trends that are really important for leaders to think about as they improve their organization throughout the year. And so I'm kind of curious to know, you've listed five this year, and they're really important ones. Your trend number one, there will be a greater focus on sustainability and energy security. Trend two, inflation and food insecurity will continue to affect consumer behavior. Trend three, a growing investment in artificial intelligence and chip production, which could lead to new business opportunities. It could create also a set of challenges for leaders. Trend number four, there is this great resignation occurring or quiet quitting in the workforce that's altering our workforce and ongoing concern about talent management. And lastly, trend five, that there will be an increased need for leadership development to address all of these concerns. So why don't we just jump in? Tell us about trend one. There will be greater focus on sustainability and energy security. Many leaders are beginning to expand their aperture and think more globally, even if they're running relatively small or medium-sized businesses around the world. The Russia-Ukraine situation, right now we're looking at countries capping what they'll pay Russia for oil instead of embargoing Russian oil. So trying to cut off the energy supply to Russia being the fuel of money to fuel their war efforts, that's impacting globally how we look at energy. Anyone who's doing anything in the transportation industry, looking at how much they spend on fuel, companies that are heavily resource and fuel intensive, so any kind of manufacturing, needs to look at fuel cost as a significant driver. We are looking at energy security differently, and yet we're not yet able to move entirely to sustainable resources. This disruption is impacting which organizations are accelerating their focus on renewable and also causing us to look at things like nuclear energy differently than we did even a year ago. So I think a lot of organizations are just rethinking And that increased cost is impacting cost of goods sold, profitability, ability to employ people, supply chain, affordability, everything. And now you really get into what's happening at a local level. The impacts of these global circumstances on energy security, changes in our government's relationships with other governments as it relates to securing energy has an impact directly on the consumer pocketbook and the decisions that I make as a leader in terms of how I run my business. Would you say? Yeah, absolutely. And depending on the energy intensity of my business, as I'm going into the budgeting cycle or wrapping up my budgeting cycle, depending on where I am in my timeline, I'm really having to rethink the amount of resources I spend on energy. And what does that do for the rest of my budget allocation for other expenses? So this creates for a lot of leaders volatility, uncertainty, chaos, ambiguity. What questions should leaders start to ask themselves as it relates to a greater focus on sustainability and energy security? One is how much of my organization's activities are impacted by the cost of energy. So kind of an energy audit, just so I can understand. And then do we have a vision about energy consumption? So some organizations are heavily committed to environmental, sustainable governance, ESG, and that's part of their vision. For others, this is just a very practical question of how do we navigate expense disruptions? What does responsible look like in my sector, in my organization, so that I can mitigate the costs 
you know, as we're looking at replacing humans with robots, robots require energy, humans require money. How do I think about those investments short-term and long-term? Disruption like this really causes people to think not only about the challenges associated with the disruption, but are there opportunities in this too? And so I wonder what sort of guidance would you give your listeners to the kinds of questions they need to ask about opportunities? Is it, for example, an opportunity for me to rethink using natural gas or using batteries or some other solar power? You know, how might that impact my cost, my operation, our culture? Anyone who gets ahead of any of these trends has an opportunity to excel that others do not. So first mover to solve problems gets a strategic advantage. And depending on how quickly others move, that advantage may be a sustainable differentiator. And I think with each of these trends, this is part of why we do this trends conversation, is how do we help people get ahead of what's happening and build it into their go-to-market strategy? Maureen, I read a report recently. It was uh, Microsoft's Closing the Sustainability Skills Gap, Helping Businesses Move from Pledges to Progress. And the CEO of Microsoft said the world's entry into the digital age required that computer science move into every school. And similarly, the creation of a net zero planet will require that sustainability science spreads into every sector of the economy. And I imagine as leaders, there's a real need for us to determine what are the sustainability skill gaps? What do my people need to know about what's going on in the world around sustainability, energy consumption, and what skills are necessary for them to create the conditions in our organizations for us to thrive in a climate where energy security is a concern. I wholeheartedly agree, and we are contributing to a couple books coming out. One was just released on circular economy and circular economy leadership. We talk about net zero. There's a science around taking outputs from one organization and how do they become inputs to another. But even if we think about recycling, some truck comes through my neighborhood. The plastic bottles I use don't magically turn into carpets. They get moved from my trash can to a processing plant. They get sifted and sorted and distributed. So there is a cost to all of that. It's important for organizations at a macro level to be looking at how do they share supply chains. And then the other question that we really address is the leadership mindset of running a traditional organization may need to be different than the leadership mindset that gets us through this transformation. That mindset carries through all of these trends. It's the mindset to navigate VUCA. And part of that is finding the opportunity that VUCA can be career-ending and organization-ending for some organizations. And we look at the S&P duration of company life was 61 years in 1958. Now it's 18 years. And McKinsey recently published something that said by 2027, 75% of the S&P companies would no longer be listed on the S&P. So some will be acquired, some will have positive outcomes, but a whole bunch of them are going to have negative outcomes. With all of those, there are opportunities because there are other companies that are absolutely thriving. Like how many companies are going to shift to green energy that are in the business of doing these shifts? Those companies and the people trained in that science are going to have great opportunities while people potentially mining for coal, that's going to be declining. What's the responsibility of businesses and leaders to help manage that transition? Because if we cut industries too quickly, we're also putting a lot of people out of work and creating huge disruption in our economy. So you've interviewed 50 leaders over the year, and I imagine they're all experiencing destabilizing effects of these trends, particularly energy volatility that you mentioned. But leadership makes a difference. One of the things I hear in your interviews is that good leaders have an ability to create sustainable organizations. They're the ones that are likely going to endure these hardships. And what is it about these leaders that enable them to do that? You talk about mindset. Mindset. And one of the things that I go back to repeatedly is leaders need to have the mind of a scientist. In the past, we were able to predict and control. And so even leaders who navigated change, often they were the ones who designed the change and managed the change. 
when we started with COVID, they were subjected to the change in a way larger than many of them have experienced in the past. So this is a disruptive change being inflicted upon me. Mm -hmm. And how do I navigate that? And so this mind of the scientist, no one knows what's going to happen, but I'm able to pull people together. I shorten my decision horizon. So I'm making the smallest decision I can make and get through the next week or the next two weeks. And then we reevaluate and I have a hypothesis and I get through the next two weeks. I realize that's not the long-term approach to running successful businesses, but at points where we're facing volatility, having the ability to know which decisions are long-term and which decisions just need to be day by day, week by week, I think is really crucial for leaders because I can manage most of the time the two-week decisions. But if I think I need to figure out what's happening for the rest of the year, when I don't know if, if we're in business for two weeks and how we're going to pay the bills and who's on payroll, I really need to get really granular at experimenting. How does this look? Experimental leadership, scientific thinking and experimenting in practice. I love it. Leaders who did well had the reasonable self-confidence to navigate that. Right. I know who I need to count on. You and I talked during that time, certainly a lot. What are you thinking? What are you seeing? Knowing who to reach out to, hearing what other people are doing to experiment. This is where we can also create huge opportunities. So how are we collaborating to create something that may be new in our industry? And we're just doing a tiny little pilot so I don't blow my company up. But those little pilots, if I think about it as gardening with a bunch of different seed variations, some of those are going to produce great results, and all of them don't have to. Just some. Right. Let's shift on to trend number two. And I'm really curious about this one because it's affecting everyone's pocketbook. No matter where you are in the world, you're probably experiencing inflation. It's impacting just about every aspect of our lives, whether it's a parent in the grocery store or medical expenses, purchase of cars or real estate, inflation's a big deal. And it's impacting leaders and how they run their organization. Can you talk a little bit about this theme, inflation and food insecurity? Food insecurity is something that we generally don't talk about as leaders. But something I think is important to talk about as we think about the people we want to come to work every day and give us their undivided attention as much as possible. How many of them are living in settings that are food insecure? that they or their families or their extended families are struggling to pay the bills. And I don't remember the statistic, but it was compelling. Well, I read the USDA's report on this, and they said that 13.5 million households, 33.8 million Americans, are food insecure this past year. Big numbers. Leaders don't necessarily realize that the folks they think they're paying sufficiently because of a number of things, medical issues and the other things you talked about, or they're supporting extended families. Some of our employees that we think are fine are really suffering from food insecurity. And then on the macro level, how is that strain in people's budgets, combination of food and gas, how is that impacting their ability to buy the stuff we produce? And I imagine that creates uh, challenges in terms of prioritization, both at an organization level, but also on an individual level, your employees, and perhaps sociological or psychological hardships and stress. Yeah. I was talking to someone yesterday who's in chronic pain. I realize it's slightly different. But when I have ongoing worry about, can I pay my rent or my house payment? Can I afford the gas to drive to work? When it's $75 to fill up my tiny little car with gas, <laughs> I have the luxury of working from home. How about the person who is in a lower income bracket so they live further from work? They're not having the luxury of working from home. So they're driving every day to the office and they're paying now $100 a week for gas. For some folks, that's a significant portion of their budget. Then their food cost has gone up. Their rent may be going up. Healthcare and childcare are going up. We're now seeing people for whom the salaries or the hourly rate we paid them was reasonable. And now they're trying to make decisions about do I feed my kids healthy food? And these are challenges that all of us need to be thinking about, especially when we have a workforce who is living day to day on paychecks. 
for many individuals, this is probably the most pressing VOCA condition for them, mm -hmm. most disruptive condition, inflation, food insecurity. So what guidance would we give leaders to think about positive response to this VOCA condition, you know, which you describe as setting a vision, creating an understanding around the situation, clarity and agility, and how then does that translate to questions we might ask leaders so they have a better understanding, so they're more clear, so they can better support their workforce? One of the things that strikes me is we look at companies' visions. They are often about serving their customers or their stakeholders. So stakeholder capitalism, I look at my employees as stakeholders because they kind of create the stuff or the, deliver the stuff that people buy. So they're crucial to our organization. If that's the case, and if I value their well-being, then just like I would do an energy audit, how do I do an employee audit and really think about what's the cost of living in the geographies where my people live and work? And is the pay sufficient? And if we have people living on the margin, how do I allow them to maintain dignity so that we're not, one, having people live on welfare when they're working? And are there benefits like organizations that offer lower cost meals for people who are in the office? Often those are the tech firms and the employees getting these fabulous meals aren't in need. How do we do it for companies in need? One of the organizations we interviewed that talked about antidotes during the Depression was a food service company, and they offered wholesale food prices to their employees during the pandemic. Oh, that's interesting. So as an employee benefit, you can buy food at our cost. They don't get it at wholesale when they go to the grocery store, and people didn't need to say, I'm in need. It was an employee benefit. How do we look at the industry we're in, and how do we create opportunities that serve our employees as stakeholders. Maureen, I had the opportunity to lead a college campus and was moved by comments I heard in the cafeteria about students being hungry in the evenings. And so I did that kind of an activity where I conducted an audit and I discovered there were food insecurities in populations I didn't expect, including my own faculty at the time. And so we ended up adding a food bank to our campus that allowed for any individual in the community, including those on our campus and staff, our staff and students, to go and get food whenever they needed it. And we kept it open till midnight. And I was just surprised after doing that audit that we had so many people who needed it. It's a brilliant solution. And congratulations for doing the audit, because I think what you found is consistent with what a lot of people are finding, that folks you wouldn't think are food insecure and it's not my place to judge how people spend their paychecks. That's right, right. What other questions might we encourage leaders to ask themselves as it relates to inflation-related impacts on their organization? If we are selling goods and services that are purchased by employees who may also be food insecure, I would think I would be looking at what's the demand for my stuff. Are we priced appropriately? is the opportunity to create a more economy-focused offering. So if I'm doing something that is mid-range to upper range, is there a lower range offering that also allows us to serve the community better? It appeal to more budget-conscious consumers uh -huh. is what you're thinking. That's just yeah. a brilliant idea. So in that sense, you're thinking about what opportunities might exist for us to repackage, to provide lower costs, goods, and services to our to our customers. Well, and one could just be repackaging, as you say, repackaging to smaller volume. Yeah. You know, for, for those of us who shop in some of the stores that sell a thousand rolls of toilet paper, not everyone lives in a house that can store a thousand rolls of toilet right. paper. Can we do a budget offering in a smaller size so that I'm not spending as much of my very limited resources on the large package? but I don't have to go to the neighborhood convenience store to buy two rolls of toilet paper at a much inflated price. Very interesting. Maureen, your third trend talks about the growing investment of governments, organizations, and artificial intelligence and chip production, which could lead to new business opportunity, but I suspect there are also a host of challenges associated with this. Tell us a little bit about your, your thinking and the importance of leaders considering this trend. This was really two things in my mind. 
living in Ohio, Intel is now building a chip plant close to Columbus. And I think I heard today on NPR, a chip manufacturer from Taiwan is investing $40 billion in Arizona. So we are getting additional chip capacity in the U.S., which I think is wonderful from a national security perspective, from a jobs perspective, from a supply chain perspective. So I think it's a big win on a lot of levels. In Columbus, we're also looking at the challenge of a company coming in with deep pockets competing for our workforce. So if we're strained already and we have this brilliant opportunity that our community is growing, it's also a strain on labor. So how do we think about if I run a medium-sized business, I can't necessarily compete with Intel for construction, for labor, for any number of resources. The flip side is one of our clients runs a hotel chain. They may be able to sell all of their rooms for a few years to Intel. So huge opportunity for this client to increase their revenue. So tie that to the last trend. So people may be traveling less, but if you look at places where chip manufacturers are building plants and all of the associated organizations that are going to cluster around these chip plants, $20 billion, $40 billion, that's a lot of money. How do organizations whose demand is going down in one area, customer-facing, shift to production-facing or construction-facing? The shift in where do I focus is interesting The other thing that strikes me is AI and use of technology and how different countries are using it. Something like facial recognition and what's happening now in China with the QR codes and the closing down because of COVID. There are tools like AI used incredibly differently in different countries. I think there's also kind of an arms race in quotes for who dominates that field and that technology. There is an interlinking of chip technology and how those chips are used and who gets strategic advantage. It looks like on the near term, there is going to be significant investment in the U.S. in computer technology, particularly chips, through this CHIPS Act. I don't know if all your listeners are familiar with the CHIPS Act, but I really encourage them to look at it. It's the Creating Helpful Incentives to Produce Semiconductors and Science Act of 2022, and it's really intended to catalyze investments in domestic semiconductor manufacturing capacity and make us more competitive on a global scale with regard to production of chips. And the other point of AI, you know, what capacities it creates for organizations, quite interesting. I'm in education, and we're using AI to do so much these days, to grade papers, to assess tests. For some, for career counseling, there's a narrative that's being generated out of AI to provide career counseling to students. It's really fascinating what this AI can do, but it's also creating digital inequality. And I wondered if you had questions or thoughts about the notion of AI, its capabilities, and this notion of digital inequality that could result if we aren't managing it well. AI is enabling businesses and people to do things we never imagined for much less The thing on my phone, my Google Assistant does all kinds of stuff that I would have paid someone to do. Translation, GPS services, uh, chatbots for communicating with customers. I mean, there are just so many things that it's doing for our organization. That's in the plus column. Yes. In the negative column, negative for some, positive for others. Mm -hmm. Professions that were previously high-paid, lawyers, doctors, accountants, the things that you used to go into and know your career would be safe and you'd progress and, and all that. There are facets of each of those professions now. Machines read mammograms and they're more reliable. Machines are doing all kinds of what we would have called the less exciting tasks in in these fields. But they're also going to displace people. One of the things that's disconcerting is they displace entry level. So how do I become a good accountant? I started as an entry level accountant. Well, if all those entry level tasks that I use to build my acumen go away, then how will it impact even how we grow accountants and physicians and attorneys? So I think there were some opportunities in the plus category. I am delighted that my attorney uses AI and 
doesn't have to bill me as many hours. <laughs> right. right. So that's a plus. I'm delighted that there is some opportunity for my mammogram people to read my films with a greater reliability. So all of that's a plus for me, but it's also disrupting entire professions, how we train people and the activities they do. Now, the public thing is, that's great. They're all doing higher value tasks. We hope. We hope. But I would be a little concerned as an entry-level person in some of these fields about how it's really going to impact my career going forward. Well, there are a lot of concerns even in higher education. I mentioned some of those tasks, you know, the AI supporting personalization of education and tutoring and grading and data analytics, even writing tasks and plagiarism detection, all of these things. And so it really requires a faculty to start thinking differently about their work and what is the higher level work. So it begs the question for me, Maureen, the questions we need to ask leaders, what should leaders be thinking about as it relates to AI and their vision for it? And also the notion of if it's going to be positive, what's your values in relationship to the use of AI? I think the values is the big question. You know, I start most of these questions with what's my vision? How does AI enable me to accomplish that vision in a way that supports my stakeholders? And then I would look at things like, what are the DEI implications? You're talking about digital inequality. Who's impacted by that? If my organizational commitments are taking care of my stakeholders, do I have groups of employees who are most adversely impacted? Do I have groups of students who are most adversely impacted? And how do I make sure my policies and my actions attend to that inequity that I'm creating inadvertently? You know, the unintended consequences of a lot of these things. And how do I then monitor my impact? I'm always thinking about what you have to give up when there are advancements like in AI. What are the losses, the potential losses that you're creating? And how do you mitigate that in a responsible way? Look at what's happening in China now. There's a loss of freedom because people are monitored. You know, it's great to use my QR code when I get onto the subway, but that means somebody knows where I'm going every time I get on the subway. Sure. I may not care because I may be going into the grocery store, but for some people, that freedom of movement is fundamental. Even if they're not doing anything they shouldn't be, they still don't want anyone to know. Sure. The flip side is, can the government quarantine me because it won't allow me to go anywhere because it's disabled my QR code for the metro? You know, now I have to leave my phone at home and anything that requires phone access, I can walk the dog, but I can't go to the grocery store. I can't buy stuff. I can't get in my car. The trade-off in some cases is freedom and mobility in some environments that's a real concern. It's really important for leaders then, I, judging from what you're saying, to be aware of the potential benefits and the harms associated with AI and the mm -hmm. impacts on things like privacy. Really important for leaders to raise those questions, I think. Yeah. You know, the other one is, who owns my data and how is it used? I think that one is interesting in Europe with GDPR that I need to consent to a Zoom being recorded, Oh, right? I need to consent to how cookies are used on my computer. Honestly, I haven't been very judicious about, oh, yeah, I'll just accept those. But there are people who are much more thoughtful about how my data will be used and potentially used against me in the future. Mm -hmm. No, knowledge is power. And, you know, the other is Alexa's. So there are now instances, and I am not an expert on this, where people will plan a crime in front of their Alexa, and it's recorded them planning a criminal act, and that can be used against them in a court of law. Again, I don't know the instances and when it is and when it isn't, but if you're planning a crime, turn off your Alexa. Right. <laughs> well, put your the, phone in the, the other the, room. The Alexas and the cameras are everywhere these days. Yeah. And the phones. And the phones, sure. Maureen, you identified as trend number four a very human concern, the great resignation and quiet quitting, which is altering our workplace. Would you tell us a little bit about what you mean by the great resignation and this notion of quiet quitting? The phenomena that people are showing up to work, they're not actually quitting. So they keep getting paid, but they're doing the minimum required. And there have always been people that are just, we would maybe call them slackers, doing the job, 
So they're technically doing the minimum required so they don't get exited. What's disconcerting is now the volume of people in that bucket. And it's a lot more. In the past, Gallup's always looked at engagement scores and the volume of people disengaged. It just seems like this is increasing in volume significantly. And Gallup reported recently up to 50% of the workforce is now in this quiet quitting category. Half of the workforce. Well, People you look around and you think are doing a great job. Hmm, maybe not. But what do we do as people running organizations? What must we attend to if 50% of our folks are doing just enough? We're not creating the opportunity for people to be engaged like we need to. I had to raise this question because it's a shift in perspective on the phenomena. The one notion is that there are quiet quitters. The other idea that I've heard is that we're quietly firing people, that it's the action of the employers that determine whether someone either stays or goes. And if I'm not doing things to fully engage you, you're more likely to leave. This notion of quiet firing. I don't know if you've heard that one. I haven't heard that one, but it makes sense that people are quiet quitting in response to what we are doing. That's right. Because not everyone's quiet quitting. If, if 100% of people were quiet quitting, it would be a different trend. But there are folks who are fully engaged, excited to go to work. My assumption may be inaccurate is the percentage of people quiet quitting isn't 50% everywhere. In some cases, significantly higher and in other organizations, significantly lower. You know, the example you gave when you were at the university and you were looking at people who were food insecure, the fact that you made that effort to diagnose and then to offer a solution that allowed people to maintain dignity, people in organizations and working for leaders who demonstrate care, empathy, people in those organizations, I think, are more engaged and there were fewer people actively disengaged trying to disrupt the organization. I love talking to you because you always remind me that leadership matters. The, the, the way you express yourself, the way you can engage people really makes a difference. You know, I did read a study from the World Economic Forum that said that 47 million people resigned from their jobs in 2021. So that's not the quiet quitters. That, those are folks that just decided, I'm leaving my job. That's a pretty historical trend that's going to have a lasting impact for many years to come. Leadership matters. Leadership matters in keeping them and creating the conditions for them to be successful. So if leadership matters, in this case, Maureen, what are some of the questions leaders need to ask themselves about the workforce to attract, retain, and develop their people? When you talk about that volume of people quitting, one of the things that strikes me is bringing new people on costs money. The gap that work isn't getting done because we can't always just reallocate it. So work doesn't get done. What's that? the cost to the organization or opportunity cost there? What's the cost of recruiting new people? Everything from paying recruiters to bonuses, higher salaries. And then there's the onboarding cost. And then there's the cost of other people who are training these new folks. That cost of replacing those who are resigning is in some cases quite significant. Oh, yeah. If we look at a sales organization, sales that don't happen over that period of time, it can be millions of dollars per person. And then the costs for even new people to reach mastery over mm -hmm. time is quite expensive. And it's over time. And in some cases, that's years. Mm -hmm. It's significant. I work a lot with HR organizations, working with some of my clients and the frustration of, do we give people raises when they come in and they found a new job? Do we elevate them? What does that do for equity across the organization? Sometimes the answer is a short-sighted budget response rather than a, if that person has resigned, we may have a broader issue across our organization that we need to attend to, which I realize then filters through the entire P&L. And these are not minor, Bill got a new job, good on you, Bill, go. It is how do we look at the impact to the organization over time based on these trends? They're tough decisions for the organization. What should we do differently to retain people? What can we afford to do differently? Yeah, affordance kind of gets back to one of your earlier trends on inflation. I think leaders are thinking about cost-effective ways to develop people and to keep them. You know, This has to be a factor in their thinking. How can I do this in a cost-effective way? 
we're looking at launching new solutions that are much more affordable. What's the self-study option to develop yourself as a leader? What's the group option? So we are also looking at Leadership Matters. We want to help train leaders. The one-on-one coaching approach is brilliant if you can afford it. But what are the alternatives that are sustainable for organizations who can't make that investment no matter how much they want to? Maureen, what what sort of guidance might you give people who have to also think about the fact that they may be doing something that leads people to leave, you know? How do you get people to reflect on their own actions and choices and the impact that that might be having negatively on the retention of, of their employees? I'm going to use an example of a client whose name I will clearly not use, but a leader who didn't get sufficient feedback over a long period of time, then got the very difficult feedback that his behavior was disruptive. One, you start with the feedback. I need to know because I don't even know what to fix. People are leaving, but is it salary? Is it that I'm a jerk and I don't think so? Is it that I'm thinking I'm being supportive, but what I'm doing isn't, in fact, supportive in the way they need me to be? There's such a range. Your intent and impact don't match. Mm-mm. Right. Yeah. So we start with what, back to the audit. How do I audit my behavior? For leaders, it often looks like a 360. And it's painful sometimes. When people get well-intended good people, get feedback that says, boy, you may have meant well, but that thing you're doing, it's not working. And in this case with this leader, very well-intended. And he came back and said, look, what I'm doing, clearly not working. And I'm committed to fixing it. And this person has emailed me every day with things they're doing, things that are working, things that aren't working. I mean, that's the dream you want Mm -hmm. from someone who says, oh, my goodness, I'm horrified that that thing or those things I'm doing are really not serving the organization the way I thought they were. And I am going to attack that like I would attack any other deficiency in my organization. If I found out that I had defective equipment in the factory, I'd fix it because I wouldn't want people to be at risk. I don't want stuff to blow up and kill people. Equally, if I have a defective behavior that I didn't know was defective until someone did a test and told me the thing wasn't working. You don't want to correct it. I get corrected. And I realize there's a personal, emotional thing, right? That when someone tells me I'm disruptive, I want to say, no, I'm not. <laughs> it's a natural defensiveness. <laughs> You're yeah. just thin-skinned. Get over it. But when we look in the mirror and say, I didn't intend that to happen. How do I navigate my emotions? So I can make the fixes. And if I got to this level of leadership, I'm able to make fixes. It just feels bad. So manage my emotion and go fix the thing that I would fix if it were a piece on a production equipment. I'm just the production equipment now. How do I attend to my own behaviors with the same diligence I attend to a broken thing? Maureen, I think that's great advice for leaders. Look in the mirror. (laughs) (laughs) Look in the mirror. Be open to feedback. Make changes. You know, this this issue of uh, quiet quitting is puzzling for a lot of managers. Are there opportunities for improvement in this? I mean, if if I kind of see this as an issue, are there opportunities for strengthening my organization as a result of? I think there are. You know, just like everything else. One is we start with looking in the mirror, individually and collectively. So there are employee listening technologies, not employee surveillance technologies. One that we interview regularly is Greg Moran from AWARE. AWARE has an employee listening technology that uses AI to evaluate the trending they're seeing from employee platforms, Teams, Facebook, whatever the the communication tools are internally. And they let the organization know when they are starting to see negative trends. And it's daily. So it's not Christopher said he's unhappy with Bill. It's anonymized and they're looking at macro trends within the organization. Okay. But when those trends start going negative for the organization to say, okay, what happened yesterday that we had a spike in negativity? We changed a policy. Okay. Does that spike in negativity settle out? Because stuff's going to happen and people are going to be cranky. So I'm not saying we run around and overmanage stuff. But we do manage the 
trending. The spikes in the data, right? The spikes in uh, experience that we see from people. So just like I would do an energy audit, I can also do an employee sentiment audit on a regular basis. So, So with each of these trends, what's the data tell me? What data should I be using? Because also collecting data costs money and time. And am I spending my precious time evaluating the right stuff? So there are tools like this that are really refined to help us look at the right stuff. So when I implement this kind of tool, I tailor it to my organization. I, so I'm not looking at the same data as a chemical manufacturing plant does because they have different issues like unions. I don't have a union. How does the data change? They tailor it to the client. So I think there are tools like that, like the Gallup Q12, an employee engagement survey, but that's sporadic. The employee listening is daily. How do we leverage the AI and the things we're talking about for the good to help us know where we have issues and attend to them? Because policies, actions we've taken may be impacting our employees in ways we don't know, didn't expect, and we need to have ways to manage the unintended consequences. In your responses, Maureen, it's pretty clear to me that each of these trends are interrelated, whether they're contributing to the dysfunction of organizations in response to disruption or the potential to achieve a vision, understanding, clarity, agility through a connection of these trends, like AI supporting uh, our understanding of the human condition in the workplace and ways that we can improve their quality of work life, which will ultimately improve their efficiency, effectiveness, and productivity. And that's what we're aiming for. I think that uh, your fifth trend illustrates the interconnection of all of these, and that is you've identified as trend number five that there will be an increased need for leadership development. Talk about that trend. Yeah, it seems self-serving since we run a leadership institute, but (laughs) (laughs) or just saying what we do matters. As we look at how leadership has changed or has to change, so if we did a line of demarcation with COVID and add to it this whole volatility, uncertainty, chaos, as we help leaders do the pivot, which is the antidote to VUCA, do I have a vision? Do I have clarity? Do I have agility? And understanding. And understanding of the range of issues. How do I use those and build my leaders. And so if we think about the leadership life cycle and how that has changed based on COVID and VUCA, what do I need to, as an organization, be looking at for characteristics for my leaders? So back to our audit. Who do I have? Who's doing well? Who's not doing well? And who am I bringing in? With these resignations, are there people that I'm promoting rather than hiring? How can I get them up the curve more quickly? So really rethinking what does a leader look like in the future? So future-ready VUCA leaders, what are their characteristics and their mindsets and their behaviors and their resilience? How do we do succession planning? What is the audit? How do I do the 360s to see who needs to be retooled, who needs to be promoted or ready for promotion? And who doesn't fit anymore? And how do I work with them to figure out what's the, the appropriate it's a next fit step for them? For them. Yeah, yeah, sure. I'm working in an organization where someone's moving from a leadership role to a more technical role. It's a right fit. It's a win all the way around. So there are times where we can realign people just to a better role that were appropriate leaders in the past, but they may take a different role going forward. Yeah, so there really is an opportunity in this. The VUCA circumstances, the VUCA conditions, volatility, uncertainty, chaos, ambiguity, and the opportunity to develop leaders and their teams to improve decision quality, sense-making, individual and organizational performance. What sort of questions would you encourage leaders to think about as they sort of navigate this VUCA climate and develop themselves and their people? My first question is, what are the characteristics of leaders you need in your organization today? And what, how does that look five years from now? Because if we're investing in leadership development, 
I want my leaders to be ready to lead that five-year-from-now world. Yeah, horizon yeah. thinking, Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and then future back thinking and, and all of these kind of VUCA-type leadership characteristics. What do I need? So back to our audit, what does future look like? What's in place today? Mm-hmm. And where's the gap? Well, and where am I generating the wrong outcome? So if I'm training my leaders to be brilliant at command and control... I'm probably producing the wrong products Mm -hmm. if I'm a leadership development firm. So how do I retool as a company? Am I investing in the wrong training that I'm generating brilliant, outdated leaders? Are there particular strategies that you might encourage them to think about as they do this? You talked about the audit, but are there other professional development opportunities you encourage leaders to think about in their journey to be more effective in responding to VOCA conditions? We talk about a few different things. So we talk about mindsets. You know, this was popularized by the growth mindset folks. We look at mindsets associated with, for people who know Jim Collins and Good to Great, Level 5 Leadership is not exactly what we do, but a common term. So if we would look at what does Level 5 Leadership look like, what are those mindsets? So what's the comprehensive list? How do we develop that kind of thinking and being? And that's the other thing that I think often people go through leadership training and they think I'm going to get the checklist and you're going to tell me how to do crucial conversations and manage conflict and give feedback. And here's my list. And I've been through the, you know, the LinkedIn learning version of, you know, here's the eight minute thing. And I'm a fan of LinkedIn learning. So not dissing that. That teaches us some skills But we talk about leadership now as how I'm being, how I'm relating, and then what I'm doing. If I am being an absolute jerk, then it doesn't matter how I have mastered crucial conversations because they don't trust me. They think I'm an idiot or whatever the thing is. You've mastered a skill, but you haven't mastered (laughs) the impact that you want. How do we help leaders be the kind of people that are trustworthy and have a high level of moral character and virtue. And this is not a religious commentary. This is, are you a person that I would be willing to follow out of a burning building? And there are people I don't think that could lead folks out of a burning building because they're just really kind (laughs) of unfortunate people. I think we've all run into some of those. How do I be the opposite of that? How do I be a person that folks would follow no matter what? And there are people in my life that if you call and you say, I need you to do something, I'm going to do it. I wouldn't ask much. Like, if I have to get on a plane, you need to let me know so I can make the reservations. Other than that, I'd follow you. How do people be Christopher Washington? How do people be that avatar for what good looks like? And then how do you build the skills? Because frankly, if you're that good person, you may not be perfect at crucial conversations. It is less important because they trust you. So how do we help develop leaders who have that sense of being that inspires followers? It's a really powerful question. And I'm honored that you would think of me in that way. And I'm walking away from today's show understanding five trends that are likely to impact my role as a leader the idea that there's going to be a greater focus on sustainability and energy, that inflation and food security is something for me to think about, that there will be a growing investment in artificial intelligence and other technologies that could totally disrupt my workplace that presents opportunities and challenges for me to think about as a leader, that there is this phenomenon of human beings in the workplace and likely conditions that could lead to their resignation or quiet quitting or alternatively, sticking around and contributing their best to the workplace. And lastly, that there's a need for us as leaders to continue our development. Especially in the VUCA environment, there are tools. I For anyone who hasn't watched it, I would say check out the documentary. It's VUCA. It's, I think, $4 on Netflix. It's called The Secret to Living in the 21st Century. And that documentary offers a lot of tools for leaders to think about future back thinking. They call it below the line thinking, where is my mindset flipping negative or positive? So through this conversation, you consistently encouraged us to look at not only what could go wrong, 
our good risk management training, but what is the best possible future we can create? That's a question I'm asking my clients all the time right now. Yeah, there's stuff that's going wrong. And absolutely, we don't stop doing good risk management. But the other question is, what's possible in this environment? I mean, we're seeing massive technology used to alleviate cancer, organs, you know, all kinds of medical solutions. We're seeing interesting things happening in the food space, in the energy space. There, there's just brilliant advancement 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Things that we thought were never solvable will be not even a thought. That there is a possible future that's much better. But we have to lead our way through that rather than being unconscious and subject to the things that we haven't considered. Maureen, thank you for always reminding us that we have the power to create the future we imagine, one that's better, a better circumstance for our organizations, for our communities. I'm always enriched by our interviews. Thank you for having me again. Christopher, thank you. And how would our listeners learn more about you? Because you're writing for Forbes, you're constant writing, and you are contributing to the body of leadership, to the frameworks, to extending the thinking. So I love interviewing you. I also love our conversations. But I want our listeners to be aware that your contributions are really significant to anti-fragile leadership. There's a lot going on that you're bringing into the world. Well, I'd love to write about how these challenging circumstances create conditions that enable us to grow through what we go through. And so this notion of anti-fragile is something I'm really attracted to and like to write more about. And I'd love to entertain any ideas that our listeners have about how to advance those thoughts. You can learn more about my work on Christopher Washington on Medium or Christopher Washington Forbes. If you Google Christopher Washington Forbes, you can pull up a number of those articles. And you're on LinkedIn also. I'm LinkedIn, Christopher Washington, PhD. So you are locatable. You can find me. (laughs) And Maureen, I have to ask you, how would listeners get in touch with you? Thank you. We are everywhere. (laughs) We have a brilliant media team. So let me give you a couple of options. On Mastodon, so this is the alternative to Twitter for people who don't know what Mastodon is, at Inno Leader. We're on LinkedIn, Innovative Leadership Institute, and Maureen Metcalf. And we're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash Innovative Leadership. And our website, of course, Innovative Leadership Institute. And I'd say on the website, under Insights, every single week we publish these interviews and a blog associated with the interviews. So for people who are looking for resources, they're free. Part of our commitment in the world is putting out the strongest content we can possibly put out for a global audience at no cost. And so please sign up, take the free assessments, use the content and apply it to your world because every one of you matters as leaders of yourself or community organizations or churches or companies. You know, as more of us are dealing with inflation, free is attractive. So I encourage our listeners, those of you interested in leadership development, check in with Maureen Metcalf, check in with Innovative Leadership Institute. Thank you, Christopher. It's always a joy to get to hang out with you. It's my pleasure. Mm -hmm.